Thanks for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. Unfortunately, we had some issues with our audio for this episode. Our guest has a lot of valuable insights, so please stick with us through the technical difficulty. Once again, thanks again for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, hello. We welcome you to yet another episode of our Benefits Breakdown. I'm Vanessa Longnecker. Hey, Jared Bocut here with you as well. Hey, everybody. Adam Compton, excited for round two with Dave Ross. And uh, I know round one, we got into a lot on the HDHP plans and all in that world. I think on the other myths and misconceptions uh, side of the game, we're going to flip into funding, plan funding. And could be fully insured, could be self-funded, could be reference-based pricing. I know, Dave, you see a lot of them over the past 20 years with all of your experience from underwriting days to what you do now. Maybe your thoughts on where the industry's been and where it's going if we have, if we know where it's going. Are you calling Dave old with a lot of experience? Yeah, come on now. Oh. I know I'm about to turn 50, but ouch. I know nobody can see this, but he's got a blue finance hat on and it's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's just, that's wisdom. It all falls apart at 50. <laughs> Yeah. And my white t-shirt, right? It's it's easy. To, this is great when you don't have to be on video. You can get away with murder in the fashion department. <laughs> that and people don't see the COVID-20 I put on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm delighted to be back with you guys. Thank you for inviting me back. It's um, it's uh, I, I like what you have going on here. I think it's a great opportunity to get some interesting things out to folks that hopefully find some benefit from an otherwise dull topic. <laughs> insurance <laughs> are you saying health insurance is not fun you gotta sing it it makes it so much better if you sing it you know it's like everything's better when you sing it just ask rafi everybody knows you know baby beluga it's my new favorite song anyways um <laughs> okay. maybe i should pause there because we did have an introduction on the last one for those new to this one just quick 30 seconds on your role dave and oh yeah i so i head up actual and underwriting at brown and brown hayes companies but um but really what i do is i speak all over the country it's been I mean, it's probably 70% of my time is speaking and it's because of what I used to do. I was a strategist underwriter for Blue Cross Blue Shield and my job was to raise cost and raise trend. Your cost in healthcare is my revenue. And so very simply put, I was the bad guy for a, uh, for a number of years. And now I'm, sometimes people call what I am right now as a whistleblower, which isn't quite fair because it suggests that something was illegal going on. And that's, that's just not true at all. Everything was very, very on the up and up, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some dirty things that we were doing as strategists to try to achieve our outcomes, and now I'm on the other side <laughs> trying to undo it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, from a funding perspective, I mean, there's there's all kinds of different products out there when when it comes to funding, and uh, and there's different ways to think about them. And if you're if you're to bundle products into one of two categories. You can think of them generally as fully insured or some variation of self-insured or partially self-insured. And there's a lot of products that have the illusion of being some version of self-insured that are fact still legally fully insured products. And when I say legally, here's it's, you may not be aware of it, but there is something that defines whether it's legally fully insured or not. And it's the ERISA preemption piece. So, um, Fully insured products uh, do not have ERISA preemption. Self-insured products do, meaning fully insured products are bound by state laws and regulations. That was granted to states by the federal government in ERISA law. And the reason why that was granted was because states have high risk pools. 
And every state needs an, a, a way, an opportunity to collect funds to pay for that high-risk pool. It seems like the best place to collect funds for medical is through medical. And so fully insured products are filed in the state that they're sold in. That's why you typically have to have the, the domicile of the company needs to be the same with wherever the thing was filed because they're, they're unique to that state. So fully insured is, is a filed product. Self-insured has a risk of preemption is, and is not in the same capacity filed. So the first thing that you get um, by moving from, for example, fully insured to self-insured is you eliminate um, some components of cost right away. So one of them that you eliminate is uh, is the taxable component, the very piece that we just set up. That's just gone. You don't pay that in a self-insured world. You also don't pay the risk margin that's put into a fully insured product that is not needed. It's risk to you because you're a very small company relative to Blue's, United Cygnus, Aetna's entire fully insured block that is billions and billions of dollars. It's um, It's not a risk to me. I can, as an underwriter actuary, if you don't project that your block within a half a percent, you suck and should be shot and thrown away with the garbage. You're a horrible, horrible underwriter and a bad human being and certainly not an American. And uh, tell us how you really feel, Dave. Teasing on most of that. The point being is that it's very, very easy to project an entire block, meaning my fully insured block has no risk. It doesn't have any real risk, but because it's risk to the employer. I am allowed to file a risk margin into that product that I do not need. That's called profit. So in the fully insured world, I get profit that I don't get in the self-insured world. And then the last piece is something called terminal lag. It's simply the, the run out of claims from the fully insured product when you leave the fully insured product. And so you either leave it by going to self-insured or you leave it by going to a different carrier. In either of those environments, you've left the fully insured product and there's run out. The problem is, is that you can come to a carrier and leave the carrier in the same year. Because of that, um, the carrier is allowed to file into that product, that runout, each and every year, despite the fact that they only need it the year that you leave. So from a cost perspective, um, there's general that difference, those three buckets right there generally equate to roughly 8 to 12% difference on average over time depending on where you are in the country. The bigger one that drives it is the taxable component. So now take, take the fully insured bucket. And while out of what the carriers are going to talk about is they're going to say, well, let me give you a transitional product, something like a cost plus program or a minimum premium program. These will be sold by the carriers as, as sort of faux self-insured. They're, they're self-insured light so to speak. Um, but many of those products are in fact still fully insured products just with added complexity attached to it. So in many cases, you don't get the advantage at all of being partially self-insured by, by jumping into those products. Instead, the reality is, is that the vast majority of employers that, um, I'll say it this way, whatever, whatever the legal number is, and it's typically called reform versus non-reform, um, whatever the legal number of employees that you need in your state to be to be self-insured legally, that's probably when you want to be self-insured. Uh, but of course, the market. And so, like for example, here in Minnesota, where I'm out of, it's 51. In New York, it's 102. I think that's I think they're the largest in the country. It usually revolves around 50, 51, 52. 
that seems crazy to most employers to entertain the idea of self-insured at such a small number. But the reason that seems crazy is because the marketplace has shown them the wrong way to go partially self-insured. There's this presumption of risk, and there is risk, but partially self-insured, you notice me saying that over and over, means that you do carry some risk insurance. And you carry risk insurance that protects you against, in particular, high case activity that makes your claims very volatile. And so what is very easy to show an employer, very easy to show an employer, is how they can move from fully insured to self-insured without any material risk. And if you can move without any material risk, then I don't know a single employer that wouldn't capitalize on that because they immediately get 8 to 10, 8 to 12% savings. They get control of their data. They get all kinds of advantages. So there's self-insured, fully insured. Now, one of the ones that's um, popular in various parts of the country, it certainly seems to be gaining in popularity, uh, particularly in one part versus or, uh, certain parts of the country is the idea of, it can have a lot of different names. Uh, it might be called reference-based pricing. It can be called cost plus pricing. It can be called Medicare cost plus pricing. They're all effectively the same thing. There's, you're assigning the price tag of what the plan is willing to pay through the, through the actual plan documents themselves. You're attaching the price tag that, that the plan will reimburse the provider at. You're dictating what that reimbursement level is. Um, that is usually tied to a reference. The most popular reference is Medicare. Now, I'll quickly, because I have the financial hat on my head, I'll quickly reference what's happening in reference-based pricing, no pun intended, um, from a financial perspective. You'll notice, for those of you that are in some type of a Medicare cost plus or reference-based pricing product, that a very normal price tag is going to be somewhere between about 150% and 200% of Medicare, 150 to 200%. Sometimes you get down to, say, a 120%, 130, 140. You will see those. Here's the dilemma, and it is a big dilemma. Here's the dilemma, and I'm, I'm going to let the three of you talk about sort of the non-financial ramifications of what happens in reference-based pricing. But from a cost perspective, there's a very, re a very good reason why it ends up being about 160%. And that's because that's the break-even point for the provider. But without going into any, um, I, it's a very easy analysis to show. If, if, for example, this was a, if we were doing this on a video, I could chicken scratch a few things on a piece of paper and actually show you the mechanics of this. But let me say it very simply. About uh, about sixty eight percent of a given provider's revenue comes from either Medicare, Medicaid, or a small percentage comes from other. So, like people that don't people that fly in from other countries and don't have any insurance and all. Okay. The vast majority of it from Medicare. Um, I think that that one's like I don't know what it is. It's the vast majority from Medicare, and all you just think about this: sixty eight percent from Medicare, Medicaid. Okay. The problem is this, if this is actually a Kaiser number as well, we talked about that in our last podcast right out there by you, Adam, but Kaiser evaluated this and they go look at it every year and Medicare pricing is on average about 10% below the cost to the provider of performing that service. 10% below the cost 
Medicaid is about is about 30% below the cost of performing that service. If almost 70% of my revenues are artificially deflated by regulation, regulated Medicare payments, then whatever is left, which is called private insurance, which is all employer-sponsored health plans, all private exchanges, all individual products, the world we're talking to right now, your listeners, are in the remaining 32% of revenues. When when 68% of revenues are enormously deflated, what has to happen in order for that provider to hit, here's the number, the average profit margin for a hospital care system, 2.7%. They're not rolling in the dough. They are, they are not the, they're, they're not, that's like right up there with restaurant margins, which everybody knows are abysmal margins. So the only way that the, uh, that the provider can get that money back is when they push it through the private side, which forces just in the math of it, it forces their, their break even point to be right about 160% of Medicare. So here's the dilemma with that. The way that it's worked historically with Medicare cost plus is you'll see it show up in a particular region and then it'll disappear from that region after, uh, say, half a decade to a decade. You've seen it in East Texas quite a bit. It's popped up there and disappeared and then comes back and disappears. This has been going on for a couple decades. The reason why that effect occurs is take they tend to become popular in one small region of the country where there's not a lot of provider solutions, where there's one major provider that everybody goes to in that geography. Break up that provider's revenues into a pie graph of, say, a few hundred payers. And let's make those hundred payers 100 employers in that geography of exactly the same size. The very first employer that goes to a Medicare cost plus product can price that thing at 140%, 150%. They can price it at a loss to that hospital care system and save a boatload of money, a boatload of money if they're pricing at 130, 140, 150. Okay. Now, what are the ramifications of that? I'll let you guys get into that, what the employee impact is, but we're talking about cost right now. The second they save a boatload of money, what is that CFO going to say to six other CFOs on the golf course? You have to check out this reference-based pricing product. Now, when it was only one of those 100 employers, do you think the provider noticed it? No, it went under the radar. They didn't even realize that they were being under uh, underpaid for their services. It was a blip on the radar of the revenues. When the next year it's six employers, it might still be a blip, but eventually you get a material enough number of employers that are like, hey, I want to jump onto this gravy train where I'm saving money enormously, and now it becomes meaningful to that provider. And the moment that it becomes meaningful, detrimentally meaningful to that provider, what will they do? Deny coverage. And if there's multiple providers in the same region that are all experiencing the same effect, they will frequently band together and universally ban coverage. The only way that the, that the, mess or the reference-based product can work at that point is if they change their pricing. 
So they have to change it to at least 160. They have to change it to at least the break-even point plus. And at that point, you're no longer saving on, you're not saving relative to not being that product. You guys will know better. And Vanessa, Jared, I know that you, all of you, Adam too, you guys can speak better to the effectiveness of what it, what it means to the employee and what it means to the management team of it. That's just the financial side. I can, I mean, I could assume that the, the impact isn't going to be on a $50 dermatological claim. It's not going to be on something low dollars. This is likely something that really gets to be impactful when it becomes a large claim. And we talked last time about the 90-10 and the shift of where cost exposes from. So I can imagine on the impact, this is this is big dollars and, and carriers or the people that are going to fight that are going to fight it hard because it's a lot of money and very yeah. disruptive and impactful to the employees. And it's easy to, it's easy to, that's why I wanted to emphasize that 2.7% profit margin, because it's very easy to demonize the providers, but they're not demons in this thing called healthcare. They're struggling too. You know, they're, they have deflated payment structures from the government. I mean, they're, they're in a real pickle as well. And so it's, you know, but we are absolutely right. It's the big dollar stuff that happens. And so what's the, what's one of the concerns that comes from employees? Employees will actually be told in many cases through that Medicare cost plus product, they'll be told you are going to receive bills from the provider. Ignore them. You're going to receive balance bills of maybe 50,000, 100 huge numbers that are going to scare the crap out of you. Don't worry. We, the reference-based pricing TPA, are going to sick our lawyers on that provider and make sure that you don't have to pay it. And that's generally true. But that doesn't sidestep the fact that it scares the hell out of people and confuses right. them. Yeah, I mean, this is an age-old concept, right? We're not talking about something that's new. What we're really seeing in the marketplace, and Dave, I'm sure you'd agree, is the technology that's wrapped around many of these solutions has evolved, right? So there's a whole myriad of, of different things happening there. I mean, of course, compound this reference-based pricing conversation with the fact that many of the care systems are being purchased by the major bukas in the marketplace today. I mean, we have a whole different level of conversations and and factors at play here, but absolutely enlightening, right, to understand what does it really mean and how does that fit into my funding considerations of the future. Employers have lots of choices, right? Whether it's fully insured, it's self-funded, it's reference-based in any capacity, price points, and or, you know, how do we see through the cloud with transparency solutions that are truly transparent? Well, and Vanessa, you talked about technology that's coming wrapped around this. I think it's something that we need to point out and we couldn't have the conversation without is there are certain TPAs out there that have advanced in the way that they're administering reference-based pricing. Because we always say we want to present both sides of every of every conversation. Dave's told you some of the the challenges, potential challenges that may come from from this structure. But there are TPAs that do a decent job of helping communicate to the members that are enrolled on that. So some of them even have an app that if I am going to a healthcare provider and I'm a part of a reference based pricing plan, it'll tell me has this provider accepted reference based pricing payments in the past. And if they're a green provider, then yes, they've accepted them and, and you should have a decent experience. If it's yellow, uh, it could be potentially bumpy and you may get one of those balanced bills that Dave talked about. Or a red provider means they have no experience or uh, you're going to expect to get 
a fight with them on, on a balance bill. And you may have that attorney situation that Dave described. So they have made some improvements on, on from the member experience because historically uh, what would happen is I have to go get treatment for a certain illness and I'm just going to this provider and they don't know who my insurance is because there's no name like Blue Cross United Aetna Cigna on the card. So they're confused and they say, well, we don't take your insurance. And they say, no, you need to have a conversation you'll get paid. And and then they say, okay, well, we want guarantee of payment. So they ask the member to put some type of guarantee and payment in place. And then they have to come out with money out of pocket. And it creates a challenge for that from the member experience. And they're not sure what's going to happen. And so then they call their HR team and say, hey, what's going on? They're not taking my insurance. And so it creates some some of those challenges. And I think there needs to be needs to be discussed that there have been some improvements. It's not always like it has been historically where you just go in and, and roll the dice with these providers, although that does happen still at times as well. But reference-based pricing, I think, is something that needs to be discussed. It's something that is being talked about a lot in our industry and people are asking questions about it. And Dave, you talked about some of the financial challenges from the provider's point of view and meaning the hospital systems, but from the employee's point of view, there has been improvements, but it's not all roses either. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And it's the the last piece that I'll say about that, I know we want to move on to another topic here. The last piece that I'll say about it is simply this. Every number that I was giving you was when I say that the when I say Medicare pays on average 10% less. That's an average. 50% of employers, they they get it's worse than that. And 50% of employers, it's better than that. And so usually what happens is that those green providers that you're talking about, they're totally fine with the pricing arrangement because they are on the better half of that pricing from Medicare. Their costs are maybe Medicare pricing for them is fine. And so in their world, they're like, yeah, I'll take this all day long. No big deal. But in that environment, what that means is that you're actually no better off than if you didn't have that product in place from a financial perspective, because it means the payment structure is exactly where it would have been if you didn't have the reference base in place. The ones that would be red are the ones that are losing severely. Yeah. The reality is it's going to change. It's going to vary. It's going to be a significantly different conversation by market and where they're at, right, in the evolution of what you've just described, Dave. Uh, You've talked about fully insured and self-funded efficiencies, clearly uh, with the latter being a a huge win when you can, you know, again, sidestep some of of those mandates and taxes uh, alike. But, you know, what you just described with reference-based pricing is really throwing old models out the door, completely wiping out a traditional health plan experience and replacing it with this new technology and or reference-based model. A similar trend in the market today would be that of the ICRA model, right? I mean, that is, again, throwing a traditional health plan out the window and saying, I'm going to give you X dollars and you're going to buy from the individual marketplace. What are you seeing here? I mean, certainly... I'll speak to our perspective as well. Can I just comment? I don't think if, because we can see Dave, but you can't. I think Dave was, was like, man, I'm, I'm ready to have some fun. With the finance hat on. A little kid oh, on Christmas. God. He's like, I'll get yeah. him. <laughs> Is this a new toy under the tree, Dad? No, it's yeah, an Icarus, son. At some point, you just got a Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> No, I mean the uh, the Icara is the is the next version of the most failed concept in the history of healthcare. That's that's about as nice to it as I can possibly be. Uh, Icara is individual coverage health reimbursement arrangement. That's what it stands for. It's um, it is a way for your employee. It's 
it's let's be clear on the terminology first of all it's the next version of a defined contribution uh, and that's what I, when I'm saying the most failed concept in the history of healthcare, I'm talking about defined contribution. And defined contribution versus defined benefit is they're perfectly named. So the way that ma the majority of us offer healthcare is on a defined benefit basis. We say here are the benefits that we're going to offer, and the cost changes. <laughs> I mean, each and every we know that trend. I mean, the cost is constantly changing. We're defining the benefit. And the cost is changing. What defined contribution says is that the word contribution is from the employer's perspective. So the employer defines the contribution that they are going to pay for health care. The employee chooses what they want for health care. That's what the ICRA is. So the ICRA is an HRA. We all know what those are. They've been around since 2001. It's using, it's repurposing that HRA such that the employer can put money into that HRA and allow the employee to go out and choose from any multiple, like a, just a pile of different plans, which sounds like a great thing, right? You can give your employees oodles of choice. Oodles is a very Minnesota word. But <laughs> oodles and oodles of choice, which sounds like a very favorable thing. The reason why I call it the most fav failed concept in the, in the history of healthcare is because it's correct. <laughs> There's actually some, um, I was a subject matter expert in the seventh district court of Wisconsin for one of our clients at one point talking about this very subject. And um, there was some data that we were referencing that went all the way back to 1971. What it, what it evaluated was defined contributions used as a function of health care, because this was a union dispute, dispute as it applied to health care that went all the way back to then. And it, it was the number of um, defined contribution plans being offered by employers. And it was a graph over time, all the way up to the early 2000s. And here's what you saw. The baseline is about 0.4% of employers offering at any given time. And in 1971, Jimmy Carter did something with the peanut. I don't even know what. And it went up to like four or five percent and then three years later hit the floor in 1982 reagan did something i don't know what and it went up and three or four years later hit the floor in 1995 some of us might remember hillary care it was a push towards a defined contribution it went up like four or five percent hit the floor a few years later in 2001 vibas were combined with hras went up slightly hit the floor let's go more recently not part of the data that i just came up with but there was this little thing that was passed in 2012 maybe some of you heard of it it was called the affordable care act which pushed um defined contribution approach approaches through public and private uh exchanges that also went up Yet curious, it went up quite significantly, by the way. Individual coverage was about 11 million before the um, private exchanges went into place or public exchanges went into place. After the exchanges are in place, it went all the way up to 16, 17 million-ish. And where are we today? 13 million. So we fell all the way back down, just like we've seen every other time. What is the failure going on here? Mathematics mathematics does anything in the defined contribution approach change medical trend and obviously the answer is no let's say that i have a thousand dollar total price tag and the employer is going to pick up 80 percent of it 800 bucks that means the employee's picking up the residual 200 dollars this employer says i'm done with this thing called defined benefits i'm sick of it i have this entity coming in here trying to sell me an ICRA. They're promising me that I can finally control my costs. I can get this cost thing 
under control. I can define the contribution and let my employees choose whatever they want. And so that 800 bucks, that's it. That's my contribution. So the next year comes, let's call it 2022. The employer is not going to pay any more than 800 that they paid the year before. Yet what happened to the medical cost? It went up by trend. Let's use trend as 10%, the historical. It's actually closer this year, going to be closer to like 7 to 8%. But just for easy math, let's call it 10 that means that $1,000 cost goes to 1100 bucks. Of that, the employer is only picking up 800 of it. That means the employee is picking up 300 of it. The year before that, they were picking up 200. 300 divided by 200 is a 50% increase to the cost of health care for your employees. Keep it, by the way, keep it fixed the next year in 2023. Bring up the cost 10 more percent. I'm at 1210. Employer picks up only 800. Employee picks up 410. That's a 37% increase after a year that I got a 50% increase. Go to 2024. It's a 30% increase after a 37% increase after a 50% increase. I'm wearing a financial hat. I can take it off, go across the room and pick up two of my other hats. One says recruitment. One says retention. What do you think happens to those? two, three, four years after giving your employees 50, 40, and 30% increases in the cost, your recruitment and retention plummets. You can't recruit and retain. And so the only way that you can do that is by either accepting that you need to keep up with medical trend. Otherwise, if you don't, you get that leveraging effect against the employee. They will always get a leveraging effect unless you keep up with trend. But if you, the employer, are simply trying to keep up with trend, why wouldn't you be outside of that defined contribution, actually controlling the factors that impact cost? Trend is the average. I don't want to be average. I would like to be better than average, and I can't be that inside of something that I have to peg at the average to not lose. I read a stat, Dave, off the DOL, an FAQ that said in the next five or 10 years, they expect 800,000 new employers to enter this market offering that uh, 11 million or so expected. I think based off, if you're a betting man in Vegas and historical kind of government intervention, I would imagine you're going to think that's going to be uh, less, maybe uptake of this type of product. Do you, do you see it impacting any particular field though? Maybe a seasonal employee or part-time where uh, maybe traditional full-time coverage isn't as uh, applicable or, or, or industry yeah. across. You just don't see it as succeeding. No, no, no. You, you just described a great example. Actually, Vanessa, you were talking about that earlier on too. So, I mean, there, there's plenty of reasons why it might make sense. I'm just speaking for the average as a replacement to the average employer sponsored health plan for full-time active employees. It just doesn't make sense. We talked in one of our prior episodes about total rewards and how big total rewards is becoming in recruitment and retention within the space that we all live in. To Dave's point, I, I see this as a recruitment retention detriment and a detriment to um, certain organizations with their recruitment retention, where you're looking for highly competitive industries, highly competitive workforce. I mean, we the unemployment rate in the United States right now is very, very low for the most part. It's bouncing back post-COVID, and I expect it to get back to where it's like Texas, essentially zero, right? And when you're offering these types of plans, it, it makes it very difficult 
for that recruitment retention, unless it's with that specific population that you've described, Vanessa. It's hard to show a robust total rewards program with a plan like this. And then with it not making the financial impact that people believe it to make, like Dave illustrated, it makes it even tougher, which is why he, he calls them that failed healthcare plan. Yep. Just goes to show everyone's trying to solve for a very complex, right? Uh, growth area of trend in medical. I mean, how efficient can you be? We've explored a lot of topics or concepts today, certainly ones that we get under the hood on a regular basis, um, but you bring really interesting perspectives and I think challenge the status quo. So thanks, Dave. Certainly enjoy our conversation. As always, hope that you will join us again soon. I think we need to wrap things up and on to the next adventures. So thanks all for tuning in today. Appreciate your time. And I look forward to more Benefits Fun on the Horizon. Thank you for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. This episode, in combination with our previous episode titled Myths and Misconceptions Part 1, HDHPs, is eligible for one term credit. If you haven't yet, please go back and listen to Myths and Misconceptions Part 1, HDHPs. The code for SHRM credit is 22-C642M. That's 22 dash C as in Charlie, 642, and M as in Mike. This code expires after December 31st of 2022. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And be sure to tune in to our next episode. 